Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello everyone and welcome to The Bubbling Adventure, a podcast all about kids and how positive education and conscious parenting can impact their entire life as well as society. I am your host, Julie, and each Thursday, we are having conversations with guests on different themes, and our aim is to have open discussions, share different points of view, and learn in a non-judgmental way. Today, we are talking about a subject that many of you will be familiar with, feeling like the anxious parent. It happens to feel like we are overreacting, especially in a situation where authority bias affects the decision-making. Christine, who is a physician herself, as well as a mother who had to face other doctors who misdiagnosed her son, is the perfect person to talk about this subject. She even wrote a book on how to navigate this type of situation in the most effective way and improve patient-doctor relationships. Through her journey, Christine discusses parental instinct, standing up for yourself or for the patient, the impact of toxic positivity nowadays, as well as some example of communication to use in order to avoid misunderstandings. I can see that 40% of you listen to the podcast without being subscribed. You should definitely come along, it helps more than you know, and there is a new episode every Thursday. The best way to support this podcast is to subscribe if you haven't already and write a review if you're listening from Apple Podcasts. Spotify also has a feature where you can click on the five-star button. It literally takes two seconds, but it is very helpful. But without further ado, let's begin. Hi, Christine. How are you today? Hi, Julie. Very good. How are you? Very good. Happy to have you on. Thank you for being here. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience? Absolutely. I'm very excited to be here. I am a big fan of Julie's podcast in terms of it educating parents or people about to become parents. I think it's very important. I believe that I would have benefited from having more knowledge about what it means to be a parent and how to be the best parent that I can be. Of course, not a perfect parent because 
there's no such thing, but I believe in all of us trying to do our best. Thank you. That's very kind. (laughs) I'm a physician. I'm a doctor in the United States. I work currently at Yale University, which is in New Haven, Connecticut. And Connecticut is amazing. What an achievement. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> Connecticut can be sort of it's a state um, but a lot of people think oh like a suburb of New York um, and in a way that's true because a lot of New Yorkers do live in the, the part of Connecticut closest to New York City Manhattan where many Connecticut residents do work New Haven is probably about an hour hour and a half given traffic and exactly where you might be going in New York City to where I live mm-hmm. but um, it's um it's a beautiful part of the East Coast and I enjoy it a lot. I've been here since about 2006. I went to medical school in New York City. I went to New York University. I did my residency, which is the training period that doctors do in a certain specialty. So I did my residency in dermatology. My intern year was in internal medicine. That was one year before residency. Dermatology residency here in the United States is three years. And I did a one-year fellowship in dermatopathology. So ultimately, I guess in terms of my introduction, I am a physician. I'm a dermatologist and a dermatopathologist. I mainly do dermatopathology, which means that I look at slides, look at microscopic slides of skin biopsies from patients. So if someone goes in and is wondering if they have a skin cancer of some type, say like melanoma, the dermatologist may or may not do a biopsy, which is to take a piece of skin. And then someone on the other end of that biopsy looks at that piece of skin and says if it's cancer or not. So that's dermatopathology. In terms of my non-job identity, I'm a mother. I do have two children. One is 14. My She's a girl. She's my daughter. And then my son is 11. So my daughter's in ninth grade and my son is in sixth grade. And I will say it's been difficult to navigate the pandemic with two kids, Mm. but I think it's also been hard for everyone. And I do feel lucky that they're the age they are, because I think it, in my opinion, it was probably hardest for parents whose kids were like maybe three to seven when it first started. And mm, or I think actually the kids are very teenagers. Yes, teenagers also. Um, yeah. But in terms of like actively managing the child mm-hmm. on a daily basis and occupying all of their time if school wasn't in session, I think that was the hardest age because they often don't take naps anymore. And so then yeah. to have that whole day <laughs> to try to work and then also mm-hmm. teach them and occupy them. I, I, I feel lucky that neither of my kids were, were in that stage. Mm -hmm. Yes, For sure. Yeah, that's true. It's more than a full-time job. And, you know, it's also something that obviously this is why we have teachers is because we, like I say, it's a full-time job, you know, it's not like, uh, yeah. So I really admire parents who, who had to do that. And, but yeah, in the teenager side, like late teenagers, some of my parents friends for example like they were always they wanted to go out they wanted to go see their friends so you know like they keep like complaining why can't I go to a party blah blah blah. and it's also like no you have to stay home and so it's just like storms and and um, arguments and so so it's different but yeah I think they have more time where they're just on their phone and, you know, doing their thing and online school and so on on their own. So you're right. I think 
like toddlers are harder for sure. <laughs> yes. You're right, right, though. The teenagers have had a lot of trouble because I think that is a very formative time period. And to not have proper social connection is a very difficult thing. I'm sure it's going to have ripple effects down the line for that group of teenagers. My daughter, I think in some ways we were lucky because she was in seventh and eighth grade during sort of the worst part of the pandemic here in the U.S. And she at that time was more shy than she is now. So I think it actually benefited her because right before in the sixth grade year, which was a normal year, she was starting to encounter kind of that mean girl phenomenon and just where do I really fit in? And if all these girls want to get together and I like them, but I want some alone time, how do I really answer to that without seeming like I'm, Mm. you know, mean or not wanting to participate or not wanting to be friends with them. So I think that was, that was in some ways a positive thing that she could avoid a lot of that in seventh grade, since my kids were out of school for a good, maybe nine month period even. Mm. But um, you, I still wondered, you know, you, you have to go through those things, right, to have the experience of learning how to navigate situations like that. So I wonder if, in a way, even though it was easier to bypass that in the moment, again, that still may have ramifications for later on. For sure, for sure. And for you as well, right, because were you able to practice remotely or how does it work? Yeah, that's part of, I think, what's been very difficult for me. We, our clinics here in New Haven did close completely. Outpatient clinics were closed for, I think, about a six-week period, maybe eight weeks. I think six weeks completely closed. And then maybe about after about six weeks, it started to open up a little bit and you could see a limited number, you know, in order to promote mm-hmm. social distancing and people not waiting in the waiting room. Um altogether. But one thing was that dermatopathology, the slide part of it never closed because some local private practices never closed and continue to see Mm -hmm. patients and continue to biopsies. Also the hospital itself never closed. So anyone who needed critical care, including patients with COVID may have a biopsy. And so we, we stayed open as a hospital service. We did cut down a bit, so I was on less, but we had fewer staff. So when you were on, the days felt very long, even though the work sometimes wasn't, the work itself wasn't overwhelming, just to wait for one case would sometimes take hours and, you know, just due to different factors. So it was very inefficient, I think, in terms of time. And so there wasn't truly a real break for me, but um early on, we did, we, we got to a lot of people have said this too. It was fun. We got to spend a lot of time together as a family. And because the worst of the pandemic here in New Haven started in sort of mid to late March of Mm -hmm. 2020, it was spring. The weather was gorgeous, luckily for us. And we went on a lot of bike rides, did a lot of stuff outside, just the four of us. And it was quite enjoyable at first until I started to realize it's unclear when this is really going to end. <laughs> it's not and a one-week holiday. Yay. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So 
And here we are now in April of 2022, two years later. And I hope, I hope that it's really gone down to a manageable level where there'll be variants popping up here and again, but the high number of vaccinated individuals we have, and unfortunately the high number of people who have gotten it around the world will be somewhat protective, but I'm in the camp where it just still seems unclear. And Mm -hmm. while I have hope, more hope than I have in a while, I am nervous about it still. Yes. Yes. I think uh, a lot of people still have a lot of trauma and, you know, we don't know. We like, it's been a tough two years for sure. Like there's so so much going on. Um, But so you also wrote a book recently on uh, how to improve doctor-patient connection. So obviously you're on the doctor's side, but you also found yourself in the patient side or, you know, like in the patient's family side. Could you please tell us a little bit, so what happened and how maybe like being a doctor helped you in that situation? Yes. Thank you for bringing up my book. I should have mentioned it. I suppose I don't really think of it as part of my identity right now. But you are an author. For various reasons. (laughs) Yes. No, thank you. Thank you for calling me an author. (laughs) Well, I recently heard on a different podcast, Jason Reynolds, a well-known children's book author, was being interviewed and he made a comment that being an author, being a writer, I guess being a podcast host even, it's sort of a paradox between humility and ego because you have to have, he was saying, a certain amount of humility to be able to put yourself out there, but also you have the ego to be thinking someone will benefit from this. Yes. <laughs> so it's, uh, it is a paradox. And I think I feel that very strongly but my goal of hoping that no one has to go through as much mm-hmm. difficulty as I went through as a patient advocate, as an advocate for my son, since I, I hope to prevent that, I'm hoping that even if it just helps one person, mm-hmm. I think that would be worth it to me. So yeah. the book is called How to Improve Doctor-Patient Connection. And the subtitle is Using Psychology to Optimize Healthcare Interactions. The title is bulky. It is considered an academic book. Although, as I said, I really did write it for patients and patient advocates. Mm -hmm. What happened to me is that my son was misdiagnosed for more than half of his life up until he was 22 months old. So I thought that he was deaf from nine months of age when I opened up his door while he was sleeping and I released the doorknob the wrong way and it went click really loudly. And I thought, oh my gosh, he's going to wake up. And all parents, I think, Mm -hmm. would agree with me that once that baby is asleep, sometimes you're just like, don't do anything (laughs) to wake him up. So I thought I had made a terrible error. He was going to wake up and he wouldn't, he wouldn't be able to go back to sleep, but he stayed asleep. And so after the first, maybe five seconds of relief, I thought that's not right. He should have heard that. And he probably should have woken up. 
So that's when my journey of taking him to be evaluated for hearing loss started. But at that time, at nine months, I was told he's normal. Don't worry about it. Again, at 13 months, I was told, don't worry about it. He's normal, meaning normal hearing. And Mm -hmm. I will also just take a brief moment to say that I am not part of the deaf community here in the United States. It's capital D deaf community is how it's written to signify that there is a deaf culture, again, with a capital D, and it is deafness in the capital D deaf community and culture is not considered a disability. And I would actually agree with that. So I would apologize right now to any listeners who are part of the deaf community. Please give me grace and understand that I'm not trying to be ableist. And I'm not saying that deafness is a disability for anyone or everyone. Mm -hmm. What I am trying to say, though, is that I thought that my son could not hear me. And I was right. And whether you are part of the capital D deaf community or not, I think that knowledge is power. And to know that someone cannot hear you, even someone who has typical hearing like me, if, for example, right now during this podcast, all of a sudden the connection was not good and Julie couldn't hear me, I could keep talking and talking, but my message is not coming through. And of course Mm -hmm. she would tell me later, oh, look, that part wasn't recorded. Either we do it again or it just cuts out. But being able to hear someone else is very important in a child's development, but also important to us later on, because that's primarily how we communicate if we think that other people can hear us. Mm -hmm. So it became a problem because his language was not developing properly because I I'm not part of the deaf community, as I said, so I don't use American Sign Language or any other form of visual language at home. And I wasn't told that I should be trying to do so because they were telling me that his hearing was normal and everything, including language, would develop normally soon. So no diagnosis at nine months, no diagnosis at 13 months. And he was enrolled in something called Birth to Three here in the United States. And that's a program for whatever reason, if you think your child has a a late development of certain milestones, you can have the child evaluated and enrolled in this program called Birth to Three, where then therapists of whatever type is needed or deemed to be needed will come help you with Mm -hmm. your Um, child and help you be the best parent you can to that child. So we were enrolled in birth to three from about 13 months to like 15, 16 months. And just a a regular, quote unquote, sort of regular birth to three where they're just working with us to help him develop language. Because in the US, many boys do have delayed language. And that's also just normal. So they were saying it's just normal, but he is maybe a little bit more delayed. We can see that. So but but don't worry, his language will explode soon. And he's going to graduate from birth to three very rapidly. That's what Mm -hmm. I was told. Another really kind of brief story happened where the birth to three teacher went to his daycare classroom and accidentally dropped a very heavy binder. And there were six little babies slash toddlers, you know, he's about 15 months at that age in the room and all five heads looked immediately towards the binder that had banged on the floor. And only my son continued to play about 
two to three feet away, like, dude, 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 he's interested in whatever he's doing. In some ways, it was of no significance to the birth to three teacher or the daycare teacher because they didn't tell me about it right away. Hmm. And they told me maybe like 10 days later when I called the birth to three teacher about something else. And she said, oh, and by the way, you know, did, did your daycare tell you about what happened with the binder? And I said, no. So then she told me the story that I just told you. And she says, are you sure there's nothing wrong with his hearing? And I said, well, that's why he's in birth to three because his language is not developing normally. And I am worried about his hearing. I'm not sure he can hear the way that we think that every, you know, babies and young toddlers can hear. Mm. And then I, I was upset and not at her, but I was upset that now finally it seemed like someone else finally believed me, meaning a a professional believed me. Mm -hmm. And but I was upset and she could tell I was upset. And so that's, that's one also one piece of advice also. And one reason I wrote the book is because my stress sometimes made me come across as very in a negative fashion mm. where other people might think I was angry at them or, you know, thinking they did something wrong and they would become either defensive or I wouldn't maybe get the answers I needed. And so that's why I also wrote the book because I wasn't well equipped to deal with my stress and Mm. the emotion surrounding having a misdiagnosis and feeling like I had failed my son as his parent. And I think it would come across as just, ah, you know, like as if I'm attacking people, but I'm like, no, I'm I'm not meaning to attack. I'm trying to get answers. I'm trying to Mm -hmm now make up for lost time. But I, I didn't have the presence of mind even at that time to step back and try to come across better most of the time. So it's that's really a regret hard. I have. Yeah. It's yeah. really and, hard. Yeah. Um, because oh, okay. you had the, you had an instinct, you know, you had your maternal instincts that was talking to you. And at some point you feel, is it me or am I, you know, going crazy or am I being overprotective or, you know, if everybody says it's fine, I should believe them. But still, you still think on the back of your mind, you know, like, oh, like I I know there's something, but I can't quite put my finger on it. So it's just about being like not feeling her and feeling like you're the only one, you know, like understanding this situation I had also a a misdiagnosed that diagnosis that last it lasted for six months and I can't even imagine for way longer like in your in your case and especially when it's your child and you know it's very important so yeah it's uh, sometimes you can feel like you're the 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 crazy person always thinking that something's wrong and you're like you know no I'm not I I I wish I wasn't here but it's still not fixed yes (laughs) absolutely no that's exactly the message that I think I'm trying to get across with the book Mm -hmm. to trust yourself that you are worthy of being heard and if you feel like you're not being heard you do need to keep asking and keep using your voice to be heard. 
which as you said, I think it's the hardest thing. And I, I didn't know how to do that. And I would say as a physician, even being mm-hmm. familiar with the healthcare system in the U.S., I didn't know how to do it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a tragedy, not, and people, when I say it, they're like, oh, don't be so hard on yourself. And I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not being, at least I don't think I'm being hard on myself. What I'm saying is it could have been different. And so I want it to be different for others, for other parents who I think it's not unusual. I also think my story, as you said, you had a misdiagnosis as well. This is not uncommon to be misdiagnosed in healthcare, unfortunately. And so the point of the book is really for doctors and patients. I wrote it for patients. The publisher said the only people really that will read it are these doctors. So it is, it is, I wrote it then with that in mind, aimed at both doctors and patients. Um, But it's, the aim of it is to show how doctors and patients can really hear each other. And the doctor, yes, I think we have a hopefully, right, a certain amount of knowledge that hopefully the patient can hear, but also the patient's lived experience or a patient advocate's lived experience is so important and crucial to the right diagnosis oftentimes that 
if you're not being heard by your doctor, or if you think as a patient advocate, the doctor isn't hearing the concerns of the patient that you're advocating for. Mm -hmm. Yes. Second opinion, third opinion, just got to keep pursuing it. That's the message of the book. And then there are steps as to how to do that. And I focus on what we see, what we hear and what we feel. And I, I ended with what we feel because I also think that in the US as a physician, the American culture has this kind of toxic positivity is what it's called these days, where you're, you're, you're not supposed to show feelings other than quote unquote positive feelings. But I would say that in healthcare, many patients, they come see the doctor because of the quote unquote negative feelings. Mm -hmm. I'm scared about this. I'm worried about this. I'm afraid of this. Or, you know, I have this cancer diagnosis now. No one's really explained it. I'm afraid I'm going to die tomorrow or in six months. And I don't know what to do. And so I end with saying emotions, emotions researchers have shown in the last 20 to 30 years that emotions are data. We shouldn't really have to label them as positive or negative, but regardless of even how you label them, I think it's important to be able to use those emotions and know that they, if channeled properly, they will also get us to the right point. They will get us mm -hmm. to the right diagnosis to whatever we need, because these quote unquote negative emotions, say like anger or fear, fear, especially for me me is motivating. Like, I'm mm -hmm. afraid of this. I'm afraid of that. So I will think, okay, in order to avoid that happening, then I will do this, this, this. So the book shows a little bit um, with practical steps, how to navigate the healthcare system so that whatever emotions you do have won't be ignored even by you know, yourself, right? Because I think that's one of the problems I was doing that because of this toxic positivity here, I was being ignored um, by the healthcare system and not purposefully, you know, I understand that they really did think that my son was fine. Mm -hmm. So I'm also not giving the healthcare system so much of a hard time, but just saying the one thing is at 22 months when my son finally did get the right diagnosis, um, I'd remembered that back at 13 months, so almost a whole year ago, when the doctor again had said, he's fine, don't worry at the end of the visit, and she's about to walk out the door, I said, but is there something where you sometimes hear, and then sometimes you don't? And she kind of turns from the door, and she had at least two people with her, I remember that were observing the whole interaction, and I had said, that's fine. She said, oh, there is something called auditory neuropathy, but it's so rare, and you need a different test, and he would have to go under general anesthesia. Do you want that general anesthesia? And I said, no. Um, because in the moment I was, you know, I got confused and I didn't realize, but again, then all of a sudden there was this fear of general anesthesia. Cause as a doctor, I knew that, you know, if you don't have to put a child under general anesthesia, of course, don't do it because the child can very rarely die. So I thought, no, I don't want to, if my child's fine, I'm not going to mm -hmm. risk his life. You yeah, know, like just fundamentally, nobody wants yes. general anesthesia, you know, it's exactly, like exactly. So the question was wrong, right? But that's also sort of a, a mishearing, right? It's like, oh, you're just this anxious parent who isn't satisfied with me telling me you that my your son is normal. So are you going to go to the lengths of like putting your son under general anesthesia in order to feel better about this? Mm -hmm. 
But what I regret is she gave me the words, right? She gave me those words, auditory neuropathy. That is my son's diagnosis that we got when he was finally 22 months of age. And I just wish, had I trusted myself more and listened to my feelings instead of thinking fear and no, I don't want general anesthesia. And so then just closing the door in my own head. Had I gone home and typed in auditory neuropathy, which is what I did at 22 months when we were given that diagnosis. And I remembered it from 13 months. Mm. I went home, typed in. I was like, ah, yes, you hear and you don't hear. Like this is, I read it and I was like, this is exactly what he has. And I knew if I had just done that at 13 months, then I could have called the doctor and said, you know what? I changed my mind. I want general anesthesia. He needs this test. And I could explain or not that I think, you know, that's really what he has, but I didn't do it. And I think that was, it was because of emotion. I wasn't using his data and I wasn't listening to my own emotions and I just sort of ran away from it. Mm. So the book also goes into that. I leave it for last because I think that's the most difficult thing for me and focusing on what you see and what you hear in an interaction, which can't really be divorced from emotion, but you know, there yeah. the little practical tips I give in a way you can at least do that. And you, you can prove to yourself that you can change interactions just by using some tips on what, with what you see and hear. And then I think that gave, by doing that, I, cause I did it in that sequence by doing that, I realized, oh, I can also do this with the emotional data that I receive either from myself or what I think I'm receiving from someone else. And I don't have to let it ruin my day. I don't have to let my emotions ruin my day. I don't have to let someone else's quote unquote negative emotion that I think I'm sensing ruin my day. I can just say, is this what you're feeling? Because I don't know. And then oftentimes I realize I'll get back an answer. No, that's not what I'm feeling at all. Like I'm tired and I was thinking about something else and I'm like, okay, you know, and there's misunderstandings totally avoided. Mm -hmm. So, but I think, as you said, it really just comes down to, especially in an important healthcare interaction, being heard, hearing what the doctor says. So I heard it mentally, auditory neuropathy, but I didn't process it well enough, right? I didn't go home and kind of finish the thought. So I didn't hear properly really mm-hmm. in terms of then. But also because it was dismissed, it right? Yes, yeah. exactly. I mm-hmm. took, there was authority bias in there too. I talk about our cognitive decision-making a little bit and how I trusted the doctor. I wanted to trust the doctor also. Mm-hmm. It made me feel good to trust the doctor and it was easy, right? Because I wanted to think that there was no problem with his hearing. My instinct was telling me that there wasn't, but if someone was like, oh, he's fine. I'm like, okay. Cause I really, even though I think they, I felt that they were seeing me as this anxious mom who works and doesn't have enough time for her child maybe, and just wants him to be like this genius and his language isn't there yet. So she thinks he's not a genius. And so she's just like, you know, <laughs> creating problems when there are none. I, I sense that that's how they were viewing me. And I was like, that's not true. I knew it wasn't true. So I was, you know, okay with that because it didn't really matter. But I think that did also influence me to think, okay, mm-hmm. like, I know I'm not like that. So if they're saying it's okay, fine, I can trust them. It's okay. Yes, but there job, was a lot of know, contribution. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. And so how did it affect like once your, your son got his diagnosis? How did it improve communication or, you know, how, how did it change, for example, your, your son's life and and yours as well? Yes. So we were also told once he was diagnosed that it was unlikely that hearing aids or cochlear implants would help him. 
So I considered going the route of trying to immerse ourselves in that capital D deaf community and culture. And there is there are communities you know, all over the US like that. And we are lucky here in Connecticut, there is a deaf community within New Haven. And also there's a, the first deaf school in the US actually is in Hartford, Connecticut, which is just about 45 minutes from here. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, we could move to Hartford or, you know, get better access to the capital D deaf community here in New Haven and try to figure out how to learn sign language, how to teach him the language. But I felt, honestly, I felt overwhelmed. And quite honestly, to think of trying to become fluent in a different language, meaning fluent in American Sign Language, at the same time of trying to make up for the fact that he didn't have proper language and he's basically two years old, I didn't think I could do it. So since, and not just me then, but also then his older sister, you know, his sister who's three years older than me, my husband, and then his grandparents on both sides, how was I gonna get all of these people to learn sign language? in a rapid fashion, you know? Mm -hmm. And so since the medical professional said there was a chance that with cochlear implants, he would be able to have access to sound. I will admit I took it, even though I was sure that it wouldn't really help. So at the same time, I was trying to figure out how to get access to sign language and figure it out. Um, But it was hard to do both things at the same time. And so I will say I took a gamble and I put pretty much 99% of our eggs in the basket of these cochlear implants will help him and, you know, we'll, we'll work with it because it was a lot of work to try to make up for that two years of lost Mm -hmm. language into then he's still getting older. So time does not stop. It's not like at two years old, you can say, okay, you stop growing we'll give you cochlear implants and just incubate, kind of like stay frozen in time. Then we'll pour two years of language into you. Then you'll still be two. And then you move on, right? Mm -hmm. There's such an explosion of language from age two to three to four to five to six that we were just getting more behind, behind, behind as he continued to grow older. Luckily, the cochlear implants, long story short, did work for him. So then even more after about a year when we realized, okay, he's progressing, not quickly, but his language is progressing in a quote unquote normal fashion, meaning that it's at about a year of age for a baby that they start really using words, stringing words together. And so that's where he was at, a, mm-hmm. at age three, he was finally like a one-year-old baby and, and that's called listening age. So his, his language, his spoken language matched his listening age, which was one year. But imagine for a three-year-old to only have the language of a one-year-old, it's very difficult. And so that's why I regret it. Had he been diagnosed at 13 months, he would have been that far less behind and we would have had that far less to make up for. Mm -hmm. And life would have just been easier and less stressful for me. For him, we really tried to make it fun the language acquisition to be fun. And Mm -hmm. the one way to do that in what we were using, which is called auditory verbal therapy, is just they say to bathe the child in sound and language. So I was just talking all the time around him. 
And like, even here, I'd be like, I'm sitting at the computer and I'm talking to Julie and this is a microphone. This is the computer. And, you know, it's 148 and, you know, and, and just constant narration, constant, which wasn't easy for me, but for him, I don't think that was stressful, you know, Um, (laughs) but for me to learn how to do that wasn't, wasn't easy. Hmm. And how is he doing now? Is he going to school? And yes, he's doing wonderfully in terms of, you know, language. He's um, spoken language. He's going to sixth grade in a mainstream school. He, no one thinks he's deaf. And again, I don't mean that to sound ableist, just that is unfortunately the reality, the stereotype for most people in even this area is very much that you cannot be deaf if you can use spoken language. Mm. The interesting thing is he is still deaf. He's deaf. And I accept that. And I love that about him. And I think he, what I'm happy about is I think he actually accepts that and loves that about himself as well. Meaning that he doesn't wear the cochlear implants all the time. And when he doesn't have the external part on, he cannot hear anything. So he can still talk. Um, He can't hear himself talk. Um, But, and he can sort of read lips and we're starting to try to learn sign language. So um, we can still communicate. And of course I can write things down for him and things like that. Um, And he can, you know, sort of, I can nod, we can, we can use sort of visual cues and things like that. And it's, it's wonderful. The whole journey, I would say was definitely not easy. There were many, many tears and, you know, sort of quote unquote negative emotions for me. But one thing is, is. I do think he and I have a very strong relationship. And so I wouldn't necessarily change any of this. If someone told me, well, then you'll lose that relation. It'll still be good, but it won't be as strong. And I would say, well, you know, then, then I'll, I'll, it's okay. Then like, let just everything happen the way it happened, because we have a, a strong bond that was created through auditory verbal therapy. And that is very valuable to me. And I think we love each other the more because of it. So in the end, I would say, yeah, it it all worked out. And not just really from a language perspective, but just from the perspective of as a parent, you just want your child to be able to live their best life and divorced from language and what kind of community you're in. I think between parent and child, it's that, am I advancing a world for you where you can then become whatever it is that you want. And even though there used to be more so than now, a big controversy about giving cochlear implants to babies and toddlers who can't make that choice for themselves, given that the capital D deaf community says there's nothing wrong with deafness. Mm -hmm. There's visual language, you know, American sign language, French sign language, British sign language. Um, I agree with that, but it's just like, imagine if, you know, for hearing parents, if like Julie speaks French as well, I know if I had a child and all of a sudden they're like, you can no longer speak English to this child. It's only French and try to have a really good relationship with your child. And I would say, wait, what, what, you know, no, I can't do that. Like Mm -hmm. if the child can learn English as well as French, why not? Like, let's do both. You know, Um, if French is important, let's do French too, but why not English as well? And some people just, it's true. They cannot have access to language. And my son may have been in that camp, but for me and everyone around us to be forced all of a sudden, like become fluent in a new language, 
it, it was a really hard ask. Whereas I know now we can all do that. We can all still become fluent in American Sign Language at a slower pace mm-hmm. um, since he has one language under yeah. his belt now. And so I realized at the time that, well, if it's only American Sign Language or some sort of visual language that is possible, okay. Um, but let's experiment this way first see if it works because then we still have the option later of visual language but the spoken language window will will not be there forever because most people if you go with sign language first and only that and then after about age experts say this is from experts i'm not sure but they say after about age six seven if then you try to give cochlear implants to a child who never who probably never really um heard well through their ears, it, it won't work. They will not develop spoken language. Mm. So it was sort of like, well, with one way you could maybe have both languages or as many languages as possible later with the way of just going with visual language alone, it's probably just that one visual language and maybe other visual languages, but not spoken language. So mm-hmm. I went with the option where I felt like it was the most possibility still open. But mm-hmm. I will say, um, and again, maybe this will sound ableist, um, and I apologize for that. If so, I, I will say that I wanted him, I did want him to have that choice yeah. between spoken and non-spoken language. And since he was too young to make that choice for himself, I thought, well, with this choice of cochlear implants, he can always abandon them later on in life and choose any type of visual language. Mm-hmm. And so he still has the choice. Whereas if I choose for him now, no, no spoken language, and let's just do a visual language route, he wouldn't have the choice of both ways later on either. So it was hard. I, I, you can probably tell I'm still not quite sure if I made the right decision or not, but, um, as I think that's part of parenting, you're never really going to know. Yeah. But um, you'll yeah. maybe find out eventually. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but you're doing amazing, Christian. Thank you for for sharing all of that. It's um, it's good to hear that he's doing well, and you know that yeah, it makes me happy to know that eventually, you know, once you are able to to find a way to communicate that works for everyone, then you can really see the the progress and and now you kind of have to go with that because anyway this is how it happened and you know there's always some guilt and like self-judgment but you did the best you could and you're doing amazing still so yeah amazing uh thank you for sharing your story is there any last advice that you would like to share i would just say that parents and patient advocates you have more power than you would think there's definitely an authority bias when you go to the doctor, when I go to the doctor, you know, I don't want to seem rude. I don't want to seem like I think I know better because in, I I don't, I I wouldn't Mm -hmm. say that I do, even as a physician, I don't. But if you have a strong feeling about something, definitely make sure that you're heard. That's, that would be my final, Mm -hmm. final message. Yes. And actually also, I remember that it would help for me to take notes because every time I would be in front of the doctor, I would just 
forget or you know they would ask questions and then I I would completely forget even like the symptoms that I was getting every day and so I think having notes and you know sort of a checklist to make sure that you mentioned everything because how many times have I like gone and then I'm like oh I forgot to mention the most important thing because you just get you know it's absolutely uh, I absolutely agree with you and that's something that I say too um, in the book, in the practical applications, I'll say that, write it down, mm-hmm. practice ahead of time, what you want to say as the patient, um, doctors should do this too, but you know, we see a lot of patients, right? So hopefully we learn through seeing patients, what we think patients would want to hear. So in that, that sense, we are practicing it for a patient. Hopefully you don't have tons and tons of healthcare visits. So the ones you have, hopefully you can make them count. And yeah, I do recommend that write down the question you really want to know. And if you didn't, right, if you forgot certain symptoms or you couldn't ask what you want, feel free to call the doctor's office and leave a message. And Mm -hmm. maybe, yes, it's true. I don't always get back to patients right away, especially at this point in the pandemic, because oftentimes we're overwhelmed and understaffed, but still they should answer at some point. And if they don't, then yeah, you know, make sure then you try to find someone else who will hear you. Yeah, that's a great advice. Thank you so much, Christine. We will leave all of your links in the description box so that everyone can go and check out your website as well as your book. And thank you so much for sharing everything with us today. It was incredible. Thank you, Julie. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening. Feel free to share if you think it might be helpful to someone you know. If you enjoyed this episode, then please make sure to write a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and subscribe if you haven't already. That's it for me. See you soon with the next episode. And in the meantime, have a lovely day. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 